uh, given to us throughout the New Testament. And for the last two weeks, we've been looking in Acts chapter 13, verses 42 and 43. We'll be there again this morning, looking at the need to continue in the grace of God. Now, the word continue in most of these um, passages is the Greek word meno, which has the idea to dwell, to remain, to be at home. And so I want you to think of that, keep that definition in mind as we look at continuing in the grace of God. So let's go ahead and read Acts 13, verses 42 and 43. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Now we talked about grace and its definition. It is the free, unmerited love and favor of God, the spring and source of all the benefits men receive from him. Unmerited favor of God. Now we have 11 points, we have looked at 8 of them, talking about the grace of God. Alright, so let's go through them one more time here. The source of grace is Jesus Christ. I guess that's pretty rough if I'm looking at my own notes. Grace saves, it's superior to sin, it sets free from the power of sin, it provides security, it sanctifies, it is sufficient, and it strengthens. So let's go on to number nine. Grace fits for service. See, what do you mean by that? Well, hold, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, then I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul says, do not rely on self. He says, when you name the apostles, he says, I don't feel like I should be named among the apostles because Paul always remembered that he, before he was saved, was a persecutor of the church. Yet Paul was a very smart, a very educated man. In Philippians chapter 3, he talks a lot about, you know, those saying that they want to boast in the flesh. He says, I could boast in all these things. Let's go ahead and look at that real quick. Um, go over to Philippians, if you will. Chapter 3. Philippians 3. Starting at verse 4, he says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless... And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is in the law, and that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness 
which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So Paul says, look, if you want to brag in what you have, he says, I am the Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I was taught at the feet of Gamaliel. He goes on about all these wonderful things that he has, his credentials. And you know what's sad today is that is exactly how we look at people today. What, what education do you have? What credentials do you have? And we don't look at an individual's character. I have met many educated people who are crooked. I've met many educated people who couldn't find their way out of a wet paper bag. They have no common sense. I have met, you know, but yet we put such a high priority on what school did you go to? What did you learn? And all these things. And Paul says, you know what? All those are worthless. He says, my desire is to know Christ. And Christian, if you're my desire is to know Christ, guess what? We'll meet the criteria to be a leader because we're going to realize it's Christ empowering us to do so. He fits us for the service. Paul didn't say, I rely on my education. I rely on the fact that I was a Pharisee. No, he said, I rely on the power of Christ, the grace of Christ that has made me what I am. And too often, as God has graced us with the ability to do things, you know what our problem is? We, be, we become proud and take credit for it. If you have an above average intelligence, guess who gave you that? If you have an ability to work with your hands, who gave you that ability? God did. You know, we've got to realize that what we have is by the grace of God not of ourselves. Now, we may develop those talents that he's given us, but those talents are there because he gave them to us. And yes, we have a responsibility to work them, to refine them, to develop them, but even the power to do so comes from him. So why do we take credit for what is ever accomplished when it all is of God? So when it comes to serving Christ... We've got to stop thinking, I can't, or I'm scared, or I'm nervous, or I don't know what to do, I don't know what to say, but realize he gives the grace to do it. And let me just let you in on a little secret. You're going to make mistakes. We all do. But you don't stop serving him. As a matter of fact, I think it's a greater tragedy to do nothing being fearful of making a mistake than to do what you believe is right <clears throat> at this moment. And you know, like I said, human beings are going to make mistakes, right? And anyhow, the worst thing to do is nothing about it. Well, I don't know how to talk to my neighbors, so I just won't share the gospel with them. Well, it would be better to try to share the gospel with them and fumble all over all your words, but you know what? The Holy Spirit could use it still. Our ability to serve is because of the indwelling Holy Spirit that enables us to serve. Think of that again. Our ability to serve is because the indwelling Holy Spirit that enables us to serve. And if we're following the Holy Spirit's leading, then we're going to have the grace to serve. So number nine, grace fits for service. Number ten, grace produces sincere living. Second Corinthians chapter one. 
2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you, word. God's grace produces a sincere living. He says that in simplicity and godly sincerity. You know, I find so often the world wants to complicate the simplest things. When I was elected, one of the first things they did was sent me to a school of government class, and it said, the campaign was easy, governing is hard, you need us to help you, was essentially the whole class. We're the school of government, and we're liberals, so we're here to help. You know, that was, that was what I got out of the whole class. Because you're too dumb to figure it out yourself. And, you know, some of the simplest things, it should be some of the simplest processes, government can make them absolutely, incredibly complicated. I love the fact that the Christian life is with simplicity and sincerity. You know, even when uh, a couple years ago, my wife and I decided to go to the North Carolina GOP convention, and it was pretty interesting because, so they had the elections for the officers of the North Carolina GOP. And you would think that your vote counts as one, right? In other words, you know, if you're a delegate, you vote for this individual, and that's actually just one vote, right? That's not how it works. See, they have this system where you vote, and then they have how many delegates are supposed to be there versus how many are there, and I don't know. I call it their magic box. But they stuff in the numbers on one end and come out with the other end of, hey, this was our winner. And you're like, how did you get from point A to point B? Don't you dare question now. We got our formula. That's how I felt when I went there. It's like, do you realize if we go one for one, I cast one vote, that counts as one that we could add it up? Because what ended up happening is one of the positions, what was the majority of the votes there present, and what the result was were two different things. And they said, well, it's because it has to go through this whole formula, the magic box. And I'm like, oh, your magic box gives it to where you, who you wanted ends up being elected. I feel like our, if we're not careful, our general elections are getting the same way, so we need to be careful of that. But anyhow, that's how the party does it. And I was like, why do we have to make things so complicated? Especially being the party that claims they want to be the party of transparency, why did they have to make such a complicated process? Christian, the gospel is simple. Living a Christian life is simple. I didn't say easy, but it's simple. What God requires of us is not hard. Did not Jesus himself say that his yoke is easy, his burden is light? Following the principles of God's word is not complicated. And I believe if we would follow the Word of God, we'd have a lot less gray and a whole lot more black and white. But the world loves gray. Simplicity and godly sincerity. I've been told that many times. You're just a simple thinker, aren't you? Yes, and I'm proud of that. I try not to complicate things. I am not an astrophysicist or whatever. I am not a rocket scientist. I do not like complicated problems. I like simple. Now, I'm thankful for those that do like those complicated problems. Don't get me wrong. 
I just don't like those that got to make things complicated just because they can. Not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we had our conversation or our whole manner of living in the world and more abundantly to you word. You know, now let's think about this. The grace of God produces a sincere living. Sincere has the idea without wax. You say, what in the world is that about? Well, in ancient times, if you were making a bunch of pottery and some of them had little minor cracks in it, you would cover it up by putting wax in it. And that way it would still sell as top notch. But then when they take it home and use it for whatever, it breaks and you could say, not my problem. It wasn't sincere. It wasn't whole. It was patched over. So when it says that we are to live a sincere life without wax, without facade, without a pretend. You know, I've heard the phrase and used by Christians many times, well, just fake it till you make it. I don't know where that ungodly concept ever came from, but the Bible tells me, be genuine. Be who you are. And if that means you're going to have to fake it when you come to church, then maybe consider who you really are. Because that's typically where people apply that. Well, I'm just going to fake it till I make it. Really? Going back again, when I was first elected, and Josh can attest to the same thing, Kind of like the military, they have a lot of acronyms for everything, and you're like, and so I would, right in the middle of the meeting, I'm like, yeah, what's, what's an RFQ? Okay. <laughs> Can you, what, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, I'd just stop them right in the middle of the meeting and ask them, because I had no clue what they're talking about, and it sounds like Greek when you don't understand what they're explaining to you. Some of the other commissioners are like, just listen in. You'll figure it out eventually. I'm like, no, I want to know before I make a decision on this. What in the world are we talking about? You know, kind of the whole idea, fake it till you make it. Don't make yourself look bad in front of the camera. Don't ask questions. And I just tell them, I don't know. And, I, and if everybody expected me to know walking in here, then, well, then they don't have to reelect me. But I'm not going to give them that option anyhow. So, anyhow, sincere, without wax. Live in a sincere life, or do we live the hypocrisy of what my mother used to call Sunday saints, everyday devils? There are those who come to church and put on this great facade of, oh, how great I am. But if you were to meet them on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you would see a total different them. Are you sincere? You know, it's the grace of God that is going to give you the ability to have a sincere life. One that is what you say you are is who you are. And Paul says, by the grace of God, we had our conversation or our manner of living in this world. In other words, by his lifestyle, he was showing Christ. Now, the problem is why we don't end up, why, why many times preachers are not preaching about um, living, as you know, this is because of a fear of the lifestyle evangelism. Because some teach that all you have to do is live a proper lifestyle in front of the lost world, and you're not responsible for saying anything. You just live it and they'll come to Christ type of attitude. The truth is, is both are necessary. Your life and your words need to match. I have met Christians 
When I worked at Walmart, I remember one guy in particular, and I'm not going to call him out by name, but he would sit there and he would gripe, grumble, and complain, and he would be late to work, and he would just go on and on about his whole manner of living did not fit that of a Christian, but boy, when he, he would be the first one to hand somebody a track at the same time while he's complaining about everything, and I'm, I'm just like, stop, stop. Your words and your life do not match. Christian, your words and your life need to match. Live it in front of them and share it with them verbally. Both are important is what I'm trying to get at. It can't be one or the other. And I've seen both out of balance. I'll just live it and not say anything, or I'll say the right thing, but I don't have to live it. Both are wrong. But not only living it before the world, but look at the end of verse 12. Paul says, we had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. Living a godly example will be an encouragement to other Christians. Let me say that again. Living a godly example will be an encouragement to other Christians. Don't be the one looking for somebody to lead. Be the leader. Don't look for an example. Be the example. Now, there always will be somebody following your example. Are you an example worth following? Are you a pattern that they could say, if I follow this pattern, I'm going to walk closer to God? And don't give the excuse, that's not my responsibility. Yes, it is, Christian. It's every one of our responsibility to set that example for others to follow. You know, I have friends that I haven't met for years, but I know some of them are still being consistent in serving Christ. They display that sincere life, that sincere living. Folks, we need to hold others accountable for sincerity. There needs to be, in our society, less of this excuses, and more accountability to be a, a man and woman of integrity. Matter of fact, May 14th, we have right now in the books the North Carolina primary, unless it gets changed again, but I don't think it will. So what have you done to find out about the candidates? But here's what I'm finding, and I knew this, but <clears throat> it's becoming obvious with some of the candidates. What they say and who they really are are two different things. I thought of a new question to ask candidates. You ready for this? Next time you go to a candidate meeting, here's a question you can ask them. Would you be willing to give me the contact information of your spouse, your pastor, and your employer so I can get a character reference on you? I think that's a fair question. Because I'm so tired of them telling me what they think I want to hear, I want to hear it from somebody who knows them, right? Number 11, we're going to finish today. Grace sustains. Grace sustains. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and starting at verse 16, Paul writes, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. The grace of God sustains. We have a hope. Now, again, be reminded, 
when the Bible talks about the hope we have, it's not a wishful thinking, but it is a calm assurance. I have a calm assurance that no matter what happens in this world, I can rest assured Jesus Christ is coming soon. God is still on the throne. God is still in control. None of this took him by surprise. And I know we know these things, but Christian, does that not help you continue to stand even among the hard times and trials? I must press on until he comes. Philippians 3.14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You see, when circumstances are bad, Christian, you and I need to live above the circumstances. Now, it doesn't mean that when we have a tragedy in life, such as the loss of a loved one, that we don't have sorrow, but we don't have sorrow as the world sorrows because our sorrow is not a sorrow without hope. I am thankful that when a loved one who knows Christ departs, yes, I will be sorrowful in that, but I'm thankful that I have the hope that I will be reunited with them one day. The world doesn't have that hope. I am thankful, again, in my personal uh, time in the Word, I'm, I'm reading through the book of Job, and the poor guy, you know, he tries to explain to his friends that he, he has done some soul searching, and he, to the best of his knowledge, is, is, has no unconfessed sin in his life, and his friends are still pointing the finger, Job, you wouldn't be where you are if it wasn't for the fact you're a sinner. By the way, we still treat people like that today. Now, I want you to think of the setting of the book of Job. When was Job written? Before the rest of the Bible. Very good. Okay, so that means before Moses. And I believe before Abraham, after the flood. So somewhere between the flood and Abraham. Now that's important. Because I want us to think for a moment of Job's friends. Okay, so... The knowledge they had of God at the time was God created us, right? Whatever was passed down through the generations, but what they had seen and experienced was sinners are judged by God because the flood had already happened. So, with the knowledge they had, their conclusion kind of makes sense. Now, I'm not trying to justify his friends, but I'm trying to help you understand why they're so adamant. Job, we've come through this major flood, and obviously God has proven that he judges sinners. Therefore, you're being judged, it appears. Therefore, you're a sinner. You see their logic behind their thinking. And I believe this is part of the reason why God gave us the book of Job, is to show us and remind us that to... Put away that attitude, and unfortunately, it still prevails today. But God shows us that it was nothing that Job had done that led to his suffering. It was truthfully Satan challenging God and God saying, Have you considered my servant Job? It wasn't, Hey, Job's done all these big, bad, wicked things, so I'm going to judge Job. It wasn't God saying, to, hey, Satan's going to challenge me. I'll use this as an opportunity to punish Job. It truly was a testament to Job's character. 
So why are we so quick still today to have the attitude of Job's friends instead of realizing sometimes those that are suffering the worst may be the closest to God? But we're just like his friends many times. Well, you wouldn't be going through that if you weren't such a wicked person. And yet God gave us the book of Job to show us that's not why it always happens. But I will say this. You can tell a lot about the individual when those trials come. Because here Job has lost all his cattle, all his property, all his children. His wife is even telling him, Job, curse God and die. His friends sitting there day in and day out telling him, Job, you're wrong, you're a wicked man. Can't believe that you're refusing to repent. And going on and on and on. And yet the entire time Job maintained his integrity. Because Job wasn't living under the circumstances. He was living above the circumstances. He was living in the grace of God that sustained him through the entire thing. Now, when Pastor Surrett was here, he shared with us a lot of the details about how Job's misery was so bad that he couldn't sleep. And when he was awake, he was in such pain. The man had to be in agony all the time. And, you know, when, I know when I hurt, I want out of the pain, don't you? But he's in just constant agony all the time. And as far as Job knew, he was going to die in that condition. Yet, he still would not change his attitude toward God. Because he knew that as long as the suffering would last, God would give him the grace to sustain him. And Christian, here is where sometimes I believe we fail, is that when the trials come, instead of leaning on the sustaining grace of God, we lean on the arm of the flesh, we lean on the wisdom of men, and think, why is this happening to me? But God, I'm serving you. Why did you allow this to happen to me? Well, did you ever consider perhaps it was a conversation between Satan and God as it was with Satan and God, and God said, have you considered my servant Job? In other words, do you have the kind of relationship with God that God can say, have you considered my servant Ed? Have you considered my servant Al? And have you ever considered that maybe sometimes some of the trials that people are going through is be not, has nothing to do with wickedness in their life, but maybe it is a testament to their character that God knows that their, his, the, that individual's relationship is so close to God that they are going to rely on God's grace to sustain them through whatever the trial is. That should put seeing folks suffering in a different light. Because you know what I know about it? Nothing. Now, sometimes God does use suffering to chasten the child of God. He makes that very clear in the book of Hebrews. But you know, I don't know why God allowed it to happen. So why don't we stop trying to play God and realize, I don't know why God allowed this to happen, but I'm still going to love him, I'm going to pray for him, I'm going to encourage him, instead of being so quick to be the one to judge him. How must have that been for Job? As if Job didn't do some self-examining to find out, is there something in my life? Now, we're not saying Job was perfect. We're not saying Job was without sin. Job knew that. But as far as Job knew, there was no unconfessed sin between he and God. Why then 
Are we so quick to judge on some, time, some of these things? God's grace sustains. Christian, you and I can still have joy even during the trials. Because he is an ever-present help in the time of need. Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. So we need to continue in God's grace. God's amazing grace. And 11 points of grace we saw. He is the source of grace. Grace saves. Grace is superior to sin. Grace sets free from the bondage of sin. Grace provides security. Grace sanctifies. Grace is sufficient. Grace will strengthen. Grace fits for service. It'll produce a sincere living. It sustains. So let us dwell or remain, continue in the grace of God. I hope these 11 points make you desire to be, to dwell, to be at home in the grace of God. And when we are, whether it's the strengthening, whether it's being fit for service, whether it's the sustaining, God will give us the grace for what we need. So Christian, let's stay there. You know, we often say, well, when the trials come, run to God. How about we just stay at home? And we don't have to run to him. Stay where we belong, walking with him, living in his grace. Continue in the grace of God.